into the family through the Son. Oh, Father, what a privilege. And as we read in Revelation 19, the bride has prepared herself. Oh, Father, help us to prepare ourselves and not be like the foolish bridesmaids of Jesus' parable. Not having prepared, not having taken the time to be holy as you are holy of allowing your Holy Spirit to sanctify us and to cleanse us and, and rid us of all sin. We thank you that you are patient with us, long-suffering and enduring. But Father, we know that there is a day where you will test our holiness. And what has been built out of wood, hay and stubble, you will burn away only that which is precious metal, precious silver, gold, will remain. And so, Father, we pray that you would help us not to waste the days that await your coming, that we might indeed be found ready, worthy not because of our righteous acts, but because of your righteousness placed within us. Father, bring us to obedience. May your Holy Spirit convict of the things of which we've allowed to get in the way of our love and devotion to you. And so, Father, we pray for the holy refining fire, for your work to be done in our midst and in our own personal lives, as well as our corporate life, together in Jesus' name. Amen. Again, for those who are visiting in January, we've been doing a short series. I've been doing a series uh, each January for a while now, uh, just because a lot of folk are away, and so we take a shorter book. Uh, We've been in Habakkuk, we've been in Jonah, we've uh, been in Malachi, and this time we're in Zephaniah, and it's a heavy book. It's the day of the Lord, the day of his wrath. But it's a book filled also, every time we get into the heaviness of it, there's a little hint, a little glimpse, which is brought to the fore in chapter 3, which we look at next week, uh, of what he has done for those who will trust him, who will follow him, who will humble themselves before him. And uh, so we're going to turn together now in Zephaniah. And today is uh, Zephaniah number four is judgment of the surrounding nations, east and west, south and north. You'll see why they put in that order uh, as we come to it. But let's turn to his word. Zephaniah chapter two, verse four. If you've got your Bibles open or your phone or your tablets, uh, read along with us or on the screen if you uh, will. For Gaza will be abandoned. Interesting, isn't it? And Ashkelon, a desolation. Ashdod will be driven out at noon and Ekron will be uprooted. Woe to the inhabitants of the seacoast, the nation of the Kerithites. The word of the Lord is against you, O Canaan, land of the Philistines. And I will destroy you so that there will be no inhabitant. 
So the sea coast will be pastures with caves for shepherds and folds for flocks, and the coast will be for the remnant of the house of Judah. They will pasture on it. In the houses of Ashkelon, they will lie down at evening, for the Lord their God will care for them and restore their fortune. I have heard the taunting of Moab and the revilings of the sons of Ammon, which they have taunted my people and become arrogant against their territory. Therefore, as I live, declares the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, surely Moab will be like Sodom and the sons of Ammon like Gomorrah, a place possessed by nettles and salt pits and a perpetual desolation. The remnant of my people will plunder them and the remainder of my nation will inherit them. This they have in return for their pride because they have taunted and become arrogant against the people of the Lord of hosts. The Lord will be terrifying to them for he will starve all the gods of the earth and all the coastlands of the nations will bow down to him, everyone from his own place. You also, O Ethiopians, will be slain by my sword. And he will stretch out his hand against the north and destroy Assyria, and he will make Nineveh a desolation parched like the wilderness. Flocks will lie down in her midst. All the beasts which range in herds, both the pelican and the hedgehog, will lodge in the tops of her pillars. Birds will sing in the window. Desolation will be on the threshold, for he has laid bare the cedar work. This is the exultant city, which dwells securely, who says in her heart, I am and there is no one beside me. How she has become a desolation, a resting place for beasts. Everyone who pass by her will hiss, and wave his hand in contempt. Zephaniah has already called in this chapter in verse 3, coming off the uh, judgment of Judah, he has called for the humble or meek of the earth to seek the Lord. And he says in verses 1 and 2 that they are together. And then in verse 3, he says, Seek the Lord... All you humble of the earth who have carried out his ordinances, in other words, they've been obedient, seek righteousness, seek humility, perhaps you'll be hidden in the day of the Lord's anger. Now, we do get the clues throughout the passage that they will be those who are truly his, those who are seeking him in humility and righteousness. God will judge his people and their enemies and bless the remnant of his people. God's people had sought alliances with foreign nations and worshipped their gods. Now the focus of the book moves to the description of God's judgment on Judah and from judgment on Judah and Jerusalem to a description of divine judgment on the surrounding nations. God is, as, as John Hanna notes, God is the God of all nations. And those nations that led Judah to stumble would not escape the fury of his wrath. Since he would punish Judah, he surely would not look overlook their sins of others. And to illustrate this, four representative nations were chosen from the four points of the compass, from west to east and from south to north. So our outline is this. We look at Philistia in verses 4 to 7. From the west. 
We look at Moab and Ammon from the east. And we look at Ethiopia from the south. And we look at Assyria from the north. It's a geography lesson, folks. Sorry about that. And a history lesson, but we're not going to go into too much detail or we would be here for hours or days even. There's a lot to take in, but we're going to give you an overview. You see, as Thomas Constable notes, his prophecies about the nations reminded the Judeans that that God was sovereign over all the earth and he was not just singling out Judah for punishment. Let's have a look first, Philistia, there in the west. For Gaza will be abandoned and Ashkelon a desolation. Ashdod will be driven out at noon and Ekron will be uprooted. The four cities mentioned in this verse, Gaza, Ashkelon, Ashdod and Ekron, and uh, apart from Gaza, the others are in Israel today. What's left of them, the remnants that were there, but we will cover that. They were part of the Philistine Pentapolis. The fifth city was Gath, but by the time of... uh, um, by the time of Zephaniah, it's already been destroyed. So we presume that that's why he doesn't mention Gath there. In Jeremiah 25:20, we see them listed. Now, there was a famine in the land besides the previous famine that had occurred in the days of Abraham. So Isaac went to Gerar, to Abimelech, king of the Philistines. Actually, I've got verse 1 instead of 20, but that's all right. In verse 20 it says, And all the foreign people and all the kings of the land of us, all the kings of the land of the Philistines, even Ashkelon, Gaza, Ekron, and the remnant of Ashdod. So the same cities are nazed. And we look briefly, for Gaza will be abandoned. And by the way, the Palestinians who... Actually, in earlier part of last century, if you called a Palestinian, you were more often referring to Jews than to Arabs. Uh, The so-called Palestinians won't get into the politics of the conflict, but they are not descendants of the Philistines. The Philistines are gone in history, and we need to to realise that. But the promises to the areas and the lands will be both... will had a near fulfilment, as we've said all the way through, and there will be a a further fulfilment to come during the time of uh, Jesus' return. It says, For Gaza will be abandoned... Gaza was an important centre of trade located in the Mediterranean shore about 60 kilometres south of Jaffa. It accumulated great wealth through slave trading. It was probably the oldest of the Philistine cities. David Libby, in an article in 1991 in Israel, My Glory, and it's interesting the changes in 30 years, picking up little subtle bits, but says its name means forsaken. The Assyrian Tiglath-Pileser III attacked Gaza in 743 BC, making it a vassal city. Pharaoh Necho conquered the city in 609 BC, and the Babylonians under Nebuchadnezzar totally destroyed it around 605 BC. So through the centuries, Gaza has suffered many defeats. The Net Bible notes uh, this, that there is a sound play here in the text. The name Gaza, or in Hebrew, Azah, Sounds like the word translated deserted or azuba, or a desolate place. The second one is Ashkelon. We're going to fly through these simply because we can't give you too much time on it, but there's so many to list. And Ashkelon will be a desolation. As David Levy notes, Zephaniah went on to prophesy that Ashkelon would become desolate. 
The city was captured by the tribe of Judah, uh, but was subsequently conquered by the Assyrians, Babylonians, Persians, Greeks, Maccabees, and Romans. Ashdod will be driven out at... Uh, Ashkelon of Desolation. Ashdod will be driven out at noon. Ashdod was a heavily fortified city, was one of the principal ports of Philistia. It was to Ashdod that the Philistines brought the captured Ark of God and put it in the house of Dagon. The next day, Dagon was found on his face before the Ark, having fallen from his pedestal. And when the Ark was carried through the city, men were afflicted with tumours, you'll find in 1 Samuel 5. Driven out at noon possibly refers to the sudden unexpectedness of its defeat in the sapping heat of the midday sun or to the force of the attack which would prevail in only half a day. By the way, the Philistines, uh, and I think I must have missed that a little somewhere there before, but uh, are believed to have, oh no, I, I know where it's coming, believed to have descended um, and I think we mentioned this in, in, uh, in an earlier passage, that to have descended from Crete, um, translations in the, in the Bible, and I'll give you those in a minute, but uh, they were basically Greek seafaring tribes uh, that, that came and conquered that, that part of the land. They were, they were wealthy, they were well-armed, as we see with Goliath, and... Um, they were feared by most people around them. And it says an Ekron will be uprooted. Ekron, the northernmost Philistine city, was a centre for the worship of Beelzebub. So deeply satanic. It too was conquered by most of the great powers already mentioned. It was so completely uprooted, David Levy says, that there is no trace of it today. That was 1991. That stone, you see, was found in 1996, four years, five years after he wrote those words. And that is one of the few traces of, Ekron, of the old Ekron under the Philistines. And it, it acknowledges their having come from Crete and their backgrounds. There is also a sound play here in the Hebrew text, the uh, New English translation notes. The name Ekron, or in Hebrew, Ekron, with a good... Sounds like the words translated uprooted, T again. But did you notice that there was a promise of a remnant? Ah. That there is a promise of a remnant and there's a land reward that goes with it. As Warren Wiersbe notes, however, the Jews will inhabit the land of the Philistines when the kingdom is established and the Lord will enable them to live in peace. For that to happen, of course, the enemy has to be wiped out. In verse 5, we read, Woe to the inhabitants of the seacoast, the nation of the Chicarathites. The word of the Lord is against you, O Canaan, land of the Philistines, and I will destroy you so that there will be no inhabitant. They weren't Canaanites. They overtook the land from the Canaanites, uh, but it's originally Canaanite territory, and it's used as a picture for the Philistines quite frequently. It's the land of the Philistines. It's another, Kerathites is another name for the Philistines, although some translators, the Net Bible is one of them, suggest that it was a people who settled alongside the Philistines, but most, most tend to accept that it's a, it's a name that's used as an interchange. Um, uh, there's a whole lot of stuff related to that, but we won't get into it. 
As John Hannah notes, the Lord's pronouncement is as horrifying as it is clear. Destruction was coming. Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon overran Ashkelon in 604 BC. By 601 BC, Babylon must have taken all of Philistia because its seacoast was used as a launching site to invade Egypt. But did you notice, uh, and he says, I will destroy you so there will be no inhabitant. And you notice the remnant to be restored. So the key seacoast will be with pastures, with caves for shepherds and folds for flocks, and the coast for the remnant of the house of Judah. They will pasture on it. In the houses of Ashkelon they will lie down at evening, for the Lord their God will care for them and restore their fortune. The picture is still yet future, uh, but we'll get it. The remnant here, the refugees from God's punishment are a symbol of hope for Israel since the promised judgment will not be total. The motive of the remnant is common in prophets exemplifying both the severity of God's punishment and also the graciousness of his mercy. Destruction will come, but not complete annihilation. And we saw in Zechariah chapters 12 to 14 that two-thirds, certainly of Jerusalem, if not the whole of Israel, will be wiped out in that time. And the remnant is that one-third that finally turns and sees Jesus as their Messiah and accepts and receives him. In Jeremiah 23, verse 3, it says, Then I myself will gather the remnant of my flock out of all the countries where I have driven them and bring them back to their pasture, and they will be fruitful and multiply. The second direction is to the east, and that is Moab and Ammon. Turning from Philistia, Zephaniah looked toward the east and prophesied against Moab and Ammon. You can see their territories over here to the right. Moab and Ammon Ammon were sister nations, both descendants of Lot, from Lot's incestuous union with his two daughters. You remember, his daughters thought they'll never have a husband, so they get him drunk and they have a child by him. In Genesis 19, 37 and 38, it says this, The firstborn bore a son and called his name Moab. He is the father of the Moabites to this day. As for the younger, she also bore a son and called his name Ben-Ami. He is the father of the sons of Ammon to this day. They're located in the area that we know today as Jordan. They were defeated at the hands of nations more powerful than themselves when the Philistine cities were destroyed. And history confirms that Moab ceased to be a power in the Middle East. You know, we note, verse 8, their arrogance. I have heard the taunting of Moab and the reviling of the sons of Ammon with which they have taunted my people and become arrogant against their territory. I shudder when I read this and think of the jihadists amongst the Palestinians. How harsh will the judgment be? How harsh will the judgment be? Think about it for a minute. Now, Israel will be judged as well, and Israel is not yet a holy nation. We know that. It is a secular nation. It has had a strong leaning to the left. There have been strong divisions. There's also a strong right side, as we're seeing played out. But Israel will be judged. But those who taunt Israel, who deny 
the blessing of God need to watch out. You see, the people of Moab and Ammon to the east of Judah, although they were essentially cousins, second or third removed, but uh, the descendants of Lot, and Lot was a cousin of a, a nephew of Abraham. They were hostile to the Hebrew Jews from the earliest times. They sought to enlarge their territory with violence and also cause trouble for the Israelites, particularly through verbal attacks. And God judges them for two reasons. First, he judged them because they taunted or reproached Israel. Second, these nations were judged for their pride. We read in Isaiah 16:6, we have heard of the pride of Moab and excessive pride, even if his arrogance, pride and fury, his idle boasts are false. And you remember in history, the Moabite king Balak tried to destroy the nation of Israel with Balaam's curses in Numbers 22, for which God pronounced extermination in Numbers 24:17. In the era of the judges, both Moab and Ammon repeatedly attempted to subjugate Israel. Both Saul and David defeated the Ammonites, and Joram and Jehoshaphat routed the rebelling Moabites in 2 Kings 3. And he brings judgment. Therefore, as I live, wow, what a statement. The I am says, as I live, <laughs> declares the Lord of hosts, who is he? The God of Israel. Surely Moab will be like Sodom and the sons of Ammon like Gomorrah. A place possessed by nettles and salt pits and a perpetual desolation. The remnant of my people will plunder them and the remainder of my nation will inherit them. Wow, there it is again. There it is again. As David Levy notes, these nations were to meet the same utter destruction as the two cities from which their parents had been delivered. Their land would be overgrown with nettles, that's thorns and thistles. And by the way, if you've ever fallen into a stinging nettle, we did in, uh, well, Heather did in England when we were watching the Olympic parade go past in uh, uh, Sherwood Forest, of all places, with 5,000 school children uh, on that day. Uh, when we got, went to get up, she stepped back and fell into a stinging nettle. Ouch. Um, but stinging nettles grew in desolate places in the Middle Eastern deserts. And it's a symbol of judgment and desolation. The land would be covered with salt pits, thus becoming salty like the area around Sodom and Gomorrah, like around the Dead Sea. The once fertile lands of Moab and Ammon would become sterile, salty and desolate with no hope of recovery. This is the nettles. There are four, uh, four types of nettles, four species found in Israel. They're all common pests of waste places and fields. In the Bible, three different Hebrew names are quoted, but for each of them, the, the, they are synonyms with the root uh, Hebrew words, uh, Hebrew letters, meaning both scorching and burning. Not only that, the taunters would be terrified. <laughs> This they will have in return for their pride because they have taunted and become arrogant against the people of the Lord of hosts. At times, the whole world seems to mock God and those who have faith in him. 
When you are ridiculed, the Life Application Bible Notes suggests, remember that God hears and will answer. Eventually, in God's timing, justice will be carried out. In Isaiah 2.11, it states, the proud look of of man will be abased and the loftiness of man will be humbled and the Lord alone, did you get that? The Lord alone will be exalted in that day. And then he goes on to say, the Lord, verse 11, the Lord will be terrifying to them for he will starve all the gods of the earth and the coastlands and nations will bow down to him, everyone from his own place. The Lord will be awesome or terrifying to them. Brings me back to one of the Gulf Wars. (laughs) Um, when um, one of the George Bushes declared a, 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 a strike of awe and wonder um, and some of the things that they brought about then, but it will be nothing compared to the awe and terror of God. You see, the Lord will not only destroy the gods of Moab and Ammon, but eventually all the man-made gods of the earth. He will accomplish this by first destroying the nations who rely on these false gods, thus demonstrating the impotence of their gods to deliver them. As David Levy notes, leaving only himself to be worshipped. John MacArthur notes, the final fulfilment of these predictions is yet future, depicting the millennium when all gods of the nations will be reduced to nothing and the Lord himself will be worshipped universally. Then we have an interesting little one. Nothing much is said about it, but also you also, O Ethiopians, will be slain by my sword. Zephaniah turned from uh, the west to east to the south and prophesied judgment on the Ethiopians. What you may not know in history, uh, Ethiopia was also known as Cush. And you can see there in that red map area, it covers Sudan, Eritrea, and Ethiopia today, but it went up into Egypt. In fact, this second second picture shows you the extent of the Kush Empire right up into Egypt, and they were a a threat. They were descendants of Ham, you find in Genesis 10.6, and controlled the area known as Eastern Sudan, of Ethiopia, Somalia, and Eritrea of today. The Ethiopians ruled Egypt from, and you may not, you're so focused on the pharaohs, but the Kushite rulers ruled Egypt from 720 to 654 BC. And at times they threatened Judah. We're not told what the specific uh, accusation is, but they will be destroyed by his sword. The Kushite kings dominated Egypt until their defeat by the Assyrian king, Esarhaddon, in 670 BC. But they were also slaughtered by my sword when the Babylonians invaded Egypt in 605 BC. I told you there's a lot of geography and a lot of history in this, but we want to look at the main issues going on. Turning from the south, Zephaniah looked toward the north and prophesied the destruction of Assyria. Actually, Assyria is to the northwest of to the northwest of Israel, uh, but they came down. Uh, through the north because of the territory, the way that the lands were there, they come down and attack from the north. Assyria dominated the ancient world from 883 to 612 BC, around 300 years. 
Though declining, Assyria was the strongest military power of the day, dominating the world for three centuries and destroying any nation in its path. As Warren Wiersbe says, a century and a half before, God had sent the prophet Jonah, sound familiar? To Assyria's capital city of Nineveh to warn them of God's judgment. And the people then had repented. But successive generations went back to the old pagan ways and Nineveh was destroyed in 612 BC. Mind you, as we saw even during the time of ISIS, there there was a strong uh, remnant of Christians that descended from those first people that repented under the prophecy of Jonah. And there was still, in the the province of Nineveh, there was still a a strong Christian influence, although that's mostly been pushed out now. Uh, I've seen the numbers, and the numbers of Christians remaining in the area of Nineveh is quite small now compared to what it was. First, Assyria itself falls. Verse 13, and he will stretch out his hand against the north and destroy Assyria. God would soon use Babylon, allied with the Medes and the Scythians, to destroy it, just as Zephaniah had promised. But the the, the significance of this prophecy is Nineveh, the city. It was one of the greatest cities of the time. And he will make Nineveh a desolation parched like the wilderness. David Levy writes this for us, that Nineveh was situated on the left bank of the Tigris River opposite present-day Mosul, sound familiar in recent history. They recaptured, Iraq recaptured Mosul from um, ISIS with the help of the Americans. It seemed to be an impregnable city, being over seven and a half miles long and encompassing an area of 1,730 acres, enough territory to accommodate 120,000 people, Its walls were 100 feet high and 50 feet wide and had 1,200 protective towers and 15 gates. The king's palace had at least 80 rooms with 9,880 feet of sculptured walls detailing his victories in battle. The king boasted of a library palace uh, containing over 20,000 clay tablets dealing with such subjects as religion, science and lexicography. Within the city were parks, botanical gardens with unusual plants, and a zoo. Water was supplied through conduits from approximately 25 miles or 40 kilometres away. They even constructed an aqueduct to control flooding from the rivers in the area. As John Hannah notes, Zephaniah's words that Nineveh would become dry as the desert were fitting because the city had many irrigation canals. The destruction of Nineveh came at the hands of the Medes and the Babylonians after a two-month siege in August of 612 BC. Historians state that her overthrow was due in part to a sudden release of dammed-up water that surged against the city wall. This, in turn, softened the sun-dried brick wall, making it easy for the invading armies to break through and capture the city. Nineveh's destruction was so complete that Alexander the Great... Uh, 300 years later, marched his army over the buried city and never, and never even knew it. Notice the description. We'll, just, we'll fly through this fairly quickly. Flocks will lie down in her midst, all beasts which range in herds. The net, a new English translation has flocks and herds will lie down in the middle of it, as well as every kind of wild animal. It may be referring to hordes of wild animals rather than sheep and cattle, but either way, there'll be the sound in this once busy city 
only of animals, of beasts and birds, and wild creatures would invade. But the New American Standard has the, both the pelican and the hedgehog. If you're reading from another translation, it may be different. The exact um, wording in Hebrew is very uncertain. Some say pelican and hedgehog like the New American. The uh, complete Jewish Bible has jackdaws and owls. Uh, the ESV, I think it is, has pelicans and bitterns, and another has the owl and the hedgehog. Whatever it is, there's some type of bird and possibly rodent that were typically found near ruins. In Isaiah 34:11, you see that same sort of grouping, uh, both, but both but pelican and hedgehog will possess it, and owl and raven will dwell in it, and he will stretch o over it the line of desolation and the plumb line of emptiness. So you start to get the picture. It's a picture of absolute desolation. Whoops. Yep. Oh no, I'm looking at the wrong slide. And birds would sing in the ruins. Desolation is on the threshold. And the timbers will be exposed, for he has laid bare the cedar work. The buildings were falling apart with the underlying cedar beams exposed, which is an image of depopulation, destruction, and ruin. Why? And this is the recurring theme throughout. It's pride. Their pride will be humiliated. Verse 15, this is the exultant city. You can see, hear the cynicism, the sarcasm coming through the exultant city, which dwells securely, who says in her heart, I am and there is no one beside me. How she has become desolate, a desolation. A resting place for beasts. Everyone who passed by her will hiss and wave his hand in contempt. Zephaniah profiled Assyria's attitude before her destruction. And we ought to take note of that. And I think we live in a culture very similar. Uh, and it doesn't matter whether we go to the left or the right in politics. Uh, there's a culture of arrogance and pride. Zephaniah lists first her prosperity induced a self-indulgent lifestyle, giving her the image of a rejoicing city. Second, her power and protection made her feel secure and invincible, giving no thought to the possibility of being conquered. Watch out, nations. Third, she became proud in her position, boasting, I am and there is none beside me. Such is the boast of nations, both ancient and modern, at the height of their power. Watch out, United States of America, amongst others. Isaiah 47.10 says, You felt secure in your wickedness and said, No one sees me. Your wisdom and your knowledge, they have deluded you. For you have said in your heart, I am, and there is no one beside me. What is, what is the preeminent attitude, of, certainly of Western societies? I am and you can't question me. I am right and it doesn't matter what you think or what God thinks. But watch, the day is coming. As David Levy notes, God will not only bring such nations to desolation, but he will cause those who pass by to hiss and wag his hand. In other words, people would scoff and shake their fists at Assyria as a sign of contempt for a nation who considered herself better than others. Jean Getz notes, 
This is one of the greatest lessons we can learn from God's words of judgment through Zephaniah. God hates pride and will ultimately reveal his wrath against arrogance, the arrogance that leads to idolatry. And that, I'd suggest, is even the idolatry of worshipping yourself, of self-worship. Our society is just rampant with it. Warren Wearsby says, since the predictions about the destruction of these nations have all come true, isn't it reasonable to assume that Zephaniah's other predictions will also be fulfilled? Each of these local invasions and conquests was a precursor of the end times day of the Lord, which will come upon the whole world. But when the day of the Lord has run its course, Israel will be delivered and the Lord will establish his glorious kingdom on the earth. In the last chapter of this prophecy, Zephaniah explains how the day of the Lord will relate to his promised kingdom. But before he says we leave Zephaniah 2, we must note some practical truths that apply to believers today. First, God judges his people when they deliberately disobey his law. His people are to be different from other nations and not imitate their ways or worship their gods. Be not conformed to this world is an admonition for believers today, Romans 12, 2. We're called to come apart and to be different. Second, God's promise to Abraham still stands. Those who bless Israel, God will bless. Those who curse Israel, God will curse. And this wasn't a statement of their obedience. It's of God's redemptive plan and purpose for Israel throughout time. The nations that have sinned against God by mistreating the Jews can expect him to judge them, even as he judges the nation itself. Finally, God's word is true and will be fulfilled in its time. God's people can claim his promises and know that their God will be faithful. And God's enemies can be sure that his words of warning carry costly penalties. The writer of Hebrews tells us in Hebrews 10, 30 and 31, for we know him who said, vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. So what hope is there for us? Well, the same as there was for the people of Judah, as he said in Zephaniah 1, 2, 3, seek the Lord, all you humble of the earth who have carried out his ordinances. Seek righteousness, seek humility. Perhaps you will be hidden in the day of the Lord's anger. We're going to close in a word of prayer. Some musicians come up. Heavenly Father, that was just a torrent, yes, of geography and history, but of a lesson against the willful pride of man against the arrogance of men who think they can ignore the living God, the God of Israel. Our God, we thank you that you have adopted us into the vine. And we thank you that one day you will regraft a believing Israel back into that same vine. And Father, we just really pray that you would help us to be worthy witnesses. Even if it means to the point of death, that we would 
magnify the Lord, that we would demonstrate the trust of one who places trust in no other and worships no other but the Lord God himself, the God of Israel. In his name we pray.